From Aviva Studios, this is Our Industrial Life, the podcast that brings you stories from the essential industries and investigates how data and technology are shaping the future of the connected industrial economy. I'm your host, Rebecca Ahrens, and today we're kicking off a new series on the podcast. We're going to be having ongoing conversations with two very special guests. So my name is Lisa Wee. I'm a VP of Sustainability at Aviva. Hi, everyone. My name is Ruchi Shah, and I am the Sustainability Manager at Aviva. Over the next few months, Lisa Ruchi and I will discuss topics like science-based targets, the role of industry in shaping the future health of our planet, the importance of setting sustainability goals, and how industrial technology is helping businesses meet and surpass those goals. So without further ado, here's our show. Thank you both for joining me today to talk about COP26, which I know that you attended, Lisa. So I just want to start by taking this back to the basics. What's at stake here? Why should we care about what happens at COP26, especially since we hear sometimes suggestions from activists, for example, that these conferences are really just full of empty promises? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great and important question. Just to take it a step back a, a minute, you know, what what is COP? What what does that part of the uh, the name stand for? It stands for Conferences of the Parties, uh, and it relates to parties that have signed the UN United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So, this is the uh, most global conference that the world has uh, to discuss climate change and how to make progress on it. And I, I think it, it it matters because, you know, why does the United Nations matter? It, it matters because we're trying to have global cooperation on really big problems that transcend national boundaries, that no one country, no one group of actors can can solve alone. And I would say that that applies to no issue more than climate. The emissions that we emit in the U.S., which is where I'm sitting today, you know, they don't stay in the U.S. They go up into the atmosphere and they affect everybody. But they actually don't even affect everybody evenly, right? They affect some some countries and places are more vulnerable to climate change than others. Africa, for example, is a continent which is responsible for the least emissions, but is actually the most vulnerable to some of the consequences like drought. And so bringing parties together at COP26 is an opportunity to to try and give everybody a voice in saying how to move forward on solving this problem, both through mitigating the impact, but also adapting to the reality. It's challenging because you're getting so many global perspectives, but it's also, you know, really important because of the nature of this issue. So I think COP is an important forum from an international perspective, but it's also, you know, at its core, there's only so far of what can be achieved through international diplomacy. So I think maybe there's COP26, there is the official negotiations about what all these countries can agree upon and what policy framework should be set in place. But beyond that, COP26 brings together, you know, all sorts of activists, companies, investors who really discuss what what can happen um, outside of policy as well. So it's become a really important incubator almost for bottom-up action as much as it has from top-down action from policymakers. And that's what makes it 
quite unique and quite important. So I understand that there's skepticism on what can be achieved at a at an international cooperation level. I think that's well deserved, but still we need that aspect to it. But it also goes much beyond the formal discussions that are happening in what's called at COP26, the blue zone, which is where all the international diplomats are meeting. There are other zones where, in fact, all over the city in this case, there were groups coming together, sometimes led by civil society, sometimes led by the private sector to discuss how they can cooperate and work together on climate as well. So, yeah, I just I'd like to follow up on that and dig in a little bit more on why specifically it's important that the business community have a representation there. I know you mentioned in the past this innovation zone. So since you were there, it would be great to just get a sense from you, you know, what the atmosphere was like specifically among the people representing the business community, because you kind of get the sense that in the last few years, companies are starting and the private sector generally is starting to take sustainability goals on in a more sort of ambitious and meaningful way than they had before. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that that was a general comment for many COP veterans. So again, the the conference normally takes place on an, on an annual basis. Um, COP26 was perhaps uh, supposed to be an inflection point COP because we hadn't met the the year before due to COVID. And it was also an opportunity to check in at the where, where governments were on their various commitments. But but what was really noticeable this time was just how much private sector presence there was and how much investor presence there was. And again, that's that's really important and really significant because we need all parties to be present to make progress. And I, I think that what was most encouraging in the sustainable innovation zone where I was, was seeing the role of technology highlighted. Because again, climate issues are global, but they also require solutions at scale. And that is something that technology can provide. Seeing that um, that that presence there and seeing also the presence of investors there uh, to support, again, the deployment of technology was was really promising. Do you have the sense that for the businesses that are there and participating in these conversations in the innovation zone, that there's sort of more accountability that arises out of that because they've you know, made their presence known and there's sort of a growing energy around measuring commitments to change, not just making the commitments, but following up with, with data? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's almost interesting. It felt this time... In its own way, like the business community is 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 playing an activist role in and of itself. That's not to say that we are replacing the very important global youth movement that that was in Glasgow and that was there to again to remind everybody of the importance of of the impact of the decisions that were being made on their future. But I would definitely say that companies are not sitting around, business is not sitting around waiting or relying entirely on what gets decided from an international perspective. Now, there are areas where, again, we really need alignment on policy. And one one of the areas that has been left undecided for a very long time from the Paris Agreement was a, a rule book aspect relating to how carbon gets traded globally across borders and, and a greater alignment on carbon pricing. You know, yes, we do need a framework that allows 
for a more even approach across countries. But businesses themselves, even, you know, major heavy industry knows that carbon pricing is coming or is already active. And and they're already adapting their entire business model to operate, you know, preparing for a lower carbon world. They're not they're not waiting around. Um, And in fact, we as companies, again, can be progressive in the measures that we take and implement across our own operations. For example, what renewable energy, or the, the energy that we're using for our offices uh, to fund our data centers where we're developing products, where does that come from? If we do have uh, a car fleet, is it an electric car fleet? There are all sorts of ways that businesses can use our own buying power to influence things, and we are. Across industries, uh, across geographies, the private sector is trying to add renewable energy to the grid. They're creating that demand for greater renewable energy because most of us are setting renewable energy targets. And um, another you know, noticeable change is just the amount of, you, you talked about standards. There definitely are standards out there for the private sector. And I would say that even though there is skepticism about the commitments that are coming at the national level, so when a government commits to reduce their emissions by a certain amount, there there still isn't a universal yardstick for measuring that. Uh, but there is for companies. So, you know, when we as Aviva came out and, and made a commitment to set, uh, you know, a science-based target, so a target that aligns to the Paris Agreement in line with being able to maintain a 1.5 degree future, there's actually methods and organizations that are out there. There are standards and ways of measuring that. And can you dig in a little bit on these science-based targets, just explain a little bit more what they mean, why they're significant, and then just go into a few of the, you mentioned already a few examples of ways that businesses, strategies they can adopt for, you know, lowering their emissions, for example, making sure that their energy is coming from renewable sources, maybe electrifying their own fleet if they have like a corporate fleet of vehicles. Just talk about a a few more examples of things that, that you see businesses taking on. Sure. Well, why don't I hand this over to Ruchi, who uh, has just been leading our submission for setting science-based targets. So I can't think of anybody better to explain that. Absolutely. And thank you, Lisa. Well said about COP26 and the significance. And and I completely agree when it comes to corporates, um, we are adopting science-based targets, which is you can think about it as like the gold standard out there, which is most aggressive and pushing companies to limit their emissions um, in alignment with 1.5 degrees Celsius, which means that we don't want to hit that threshold. Otherwise, there will be devastating effects um, impacting economies and countries. So sort of that's the gold standard that Aviva has adopted. And when we are submitting, we are being very specific about what strategies we are going to take to reduce our scope one, two and three direct and indirect emissions. We are not saying we'll only do things at our offices, but we are saying we are going to look at our value chain, how we do business with suppliers, how we think about business travel, which in the pre-COVID world, as you know, is sort of one of the biggest sources of emissions. We are also going above and beyond where we are looking at the impacts of our software when our customers are using using our softwares, 
how energy intensive they are and what steps can be taken to to sort of measure and reduce them. So there are, from a business perspective, I think it's really critical to think about the full value chain scope and not just think about what I can do at an operational level. So you're kind of saying that having conversations with these people in your value chain, your partners, your customers, getting them all sort of on board working towards a single goal can have maybe you would call it like a force multiplier effect. Yeah, absolutely. And when we look at the in in ways as to how we are going to reduce emissions, let's say from our procured goods and services, where we have thousands of suppliers um, that we work with. That's where we are really engaging with external groups, even our peers and competitors, both at local and national levels, because in a way, most corporates, they they share some of the suppliers and customers, right? So the ask is pretty much the same. Like we want everyone to reduce emissions. So we are trying to sort of figure out how unified we can be in that messaging. And another thing I wanted to ask about is different sorts of organizations or pledges that that companies can join. Um, maybe Aviva has joined some of these already. I'm thinking about things like the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, things like this. Can you just talk about what those organizations are and why a company might want to be involved? Absolutely. And especially when it comes to sort of Aviva reducing operational emissions, one of our big focus areas is procuring renewable energy for all of our offices, as well as uh, implementing energy efficiency measures. And when we did our target submission and our inventory of greenhouse gas emissions, we, we realized that our footprint is not like one of the sort of bigger tech companies where the loads are concentrated. Our loads are scattered across the world and the market is not just there where where we can go out to each market and buy renewable energy. So we are working with groups like REBA or Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance to aggregate our loads and to send a strong market signal out there in terms of clean energy procurement. And a few other things you had mentioned previously, TCFD, CDP. Can you just explain what what these things are and, and what role they play? Sure, I guess I'll jump in here. So, you know, I think that CDP and TCFD relate essentially to reporting standards. And uh, I guess that's something that's also interesting. That's when I was talking about accountability and um, the fact that already in the private sector, there's a there's a very high bar here. So CDP, although now it, it goes definitely beyond just companies to also cities as well. You know, essentially, it is a common framework for companies to report out on on what they're doing and to provide some pretty detailed information on how companies are mitigating, so reducing emissions, but also managing climate related risks and preparing their own businesses to transition to a low tra- uh, low carbon world. They're aligned to another standard, which is the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure, and and again, you know, driving these. Dis- Disclosures are investors who are really trying to understand the businesses that they are invested in, but also to use their influence, right, to increasingly to use their influence to advance and accelerate the the transition to a net zero economy. So I would say that those are important reporting standards uh, that are out there. In some cases, they in some, you know, some countries are also choosing to require them. And there's been a, a big push to align across standards, which is helpful, because if not, we also as companies can end up getting getting a lot of reporting fatigue but but it's a the the intent there is again to provide investors with the information they need to make better decisions about whether or not their portfolios are aligned to their values around promoting green economies and um, advancing net zero 
you know, you'll generally hear, you know, was were the outcomes of COP26, you know, was it all a wash? Was it positive? Did it achieve what it set out to do? Um, you know, most people will say it was a, a fragile win. Before COP26, we were projected it based on the pledges about, you know, hitting a 2.7 degree world. Now coming out of it, we're closer to 2.4 degrees. So, you know, we still need to do more and we need to move faster. But, you know, just to kind of give some some highlights of some positive things that came out of COP26. Well, one was that we now need to come back and countries need to come back and actually ad- update their pledges every year versus the next update was going to be in 2025. So what you're seeing is people are trying to incrementally move. Okay, we were at 2.7. Now we're at 2.4. By COP27, will we get down to two degrees? Will we get below two degrees? Looking at the private sector side, you know, some of the some of the big progress and wins related again to investment was the the GFANCE, as it sometimes gets called, but it's the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And essentially, this was about, you know, banks and asset managers coming together to mobilize $130 trillion to advance net zero. That's a very, very significant amount of money. Is that mainly through technology investment? So that's the next point. How do they deploy it? So they, they've raised these funds. Now they need to, you know, invest it in technologies that will advance, you know, net zero and they need to do it in geographies, right? They're going to want to do it in geographies where there's need and and there's some gaps there. And again, I think that'll be the big focus of the next COP, which will be COP 27, which interestingly is in will be in Egypt. So there will probably be a a greater focus on on Africa, on the African perspective in particular. But it's a good example. If you want to talk about renewable energy, it's a country that has abundant renewable energy resources. They've been pretty slow to be able to build and deploy wind and solar, but technology has definitely helped. You know, at Aviva, our software is actually used to manage the it's it's the world's largest thermosolar plant in Morocco. It's uh, about the size of San Francisco to give you a sense of how big this solar wow. field is. It's got 2 million mirrors that need to be coordinated and they change direction, you know, according to the sun. And when you're doing renewables at that kind of scale, you know, that's where you really need technology, right, to help you to, through our software, at least they have a, a single control pane that allows them, it's hooked up to all the field, to all those 2 million mirrors that allows them to optimize. It allows them to run analytics, predictive analytics, so they can understand where things are likely to fail. It helps to support them in that uh, that maintenance aspect as well. You know, so that's an example where you know technology is desperately needed. But the flip side, we also need policy. You know, Morocco was very progressive because they had set an ambitious target, and that that field alone provides about six percent of of their um, renewable energy right now. But we need larger policies as well to help electrify. You know, not the just the you know I guess green the grid not just in Morocco but across the whole continent. So that's where again you need policymakers to come together, and then the private sector can obviously bring the technology that we have, and investors can help to fund it. So you kind of need all of the players there to to advance real progress. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this is actually a good transition to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is more specifically on the technology side. So we were talking about, you know, the importance of reporting and reporting standards. It seems like one of the key things that's needed for accurate reporting is good quality data, which gets back to a, a question of, of building up the right technology. So we'll we'll dig into this a little bit more in future episodes, but I was wondering if you could just kind of touch briefly on the ways that Aviva's technology in particular can be used, the, the different applications that it has for advancing our customers' sustainability goals. You mentioned one, which is, you know, a sustainable energy company in particular, but even companies that aren't in the sustainable energy field, they also can use the technology to support their own sustainability goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, we we have a, a very wide ranging portfolio, starting from helping on the engineering side to how we help our, our customers and, you know, operate as well. So the technology has sustainability benefits across all of those areas. I think that to, to give an example, just on the engineering side, we've now seen our, our customers come to us to help like from the beginning when we are designing, especially in, in the process industries uh, on the simulation side, you know, they want to understand how the decisions that they make, what emissions impact they will have. And so, you know, we, we are building in and have successfully built in carbon accounting capabilities into our suites of tools because we want to give them underlying data, you know, from the beginning that's accurate. A company like Kellogg's, for example, that has manufacturing plants, you know, they've used our tools to help them to understand how to optimize HVAC systems, how to to understand, first of all, what energy they are using, but then also to identify reduction opportunities over time. So it really isn't limited to, you know, we work very closely with the energy producers themselves, but also in the manufacturing sector, there's huge advantages if you're able to get real-time data, to visualize that data, to connect data points across global operations or regional operations, or even even within, you know, one area across different plants, you're going to have a much more quick and accurate view of what you're really able to achieve. And so that allows you to report up on your sustainability goals quite accurately, but also to achieve them. Just just to add one more point to that, what really excites me about Aviva Technologies, how it's helping um, to drive sort of emerging technologies and, and scaling up. So especially some of our tools are being used in designs for production of green hydrogen, which is which is very exciting because in the market, we often hear the skepticism about we need more technologies at scale to actually see net zero goals being met. So that was just just one thought that came to my mind. Yeah, and I think it would be great in a in a future episode to kind of I know we have a lot of really interesting sustainability focused stories. It would be great to kind of dig into those in, in more detail and, and hear some of those stories. But for now, I just want to say thank you to both Lisa and Ruchi for joining us today. And I very much look forward to future conversations. Thank you.